0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Sigurdur Hilfi Magnusson. Professor in the history in the Faculty of History and Philosophy at the University of Iceland to talk about his classic work uh, *Wasteland with Words* out first in 2010 with Reaction Books, um, and we're going to talk about that today. So, hello, Siggy. and welcome.
1: Thanks for inviting me to the to the program.
0: Thank you so much for joining me. How are you today?
1: I'm just really, really happy today. And uh, most of the days, I'm very, very happy. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: I'm guessing it's um, a little bit chilly, maybe cloudy in Reykjavik?
1: A little, yes. But uh, (laughs) uh, the the spring is uh, around the corner, so to speak. (laughs)
0: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I invited you to specifically to talk about Wasteland with Words. But I really would like to talk to you about your work more broadly and how that fits in. You know, you are a prolific historian and do a good bit of work on history but also like with implications for historiography and the way we do our craft um i mean so you could be described as a cultural historian a social historian um, a micro historian certainly um i don't know an icelandic historian uh, arctic historian i would but, so how i meh, all of the above so how do you define yourself
1: well i was trained to like a social historian uh, I mean, I, I, I got my PhD at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, and it was an interesting department since uh, they they focused specifically on social history. And the, most of the, uh, the faculty was social historians. I mean, they were doing Chinese history, European history, American history, South American history, Af- African history. But what they had in common was social history. And there was some specific... Um, Carnegie Mellon way of doing history. Uh, a lot had to do with uh, quantitative uh, methods. Uh, Carnegie Mellon is a very well-known uh, computer uh, university. So they they kind of draw from the strength of the university and the focus was very much on con- quantitative methods. And when I was going through school, I mean I started the program in 1985 and uh, Quantitative methods were the hot thing in, you know, the social history camp. and But I very soon was uh, kind of uh, drawn to towards a qualitative methods. And uh, I had actually two very big uh, scholars in my uh, corner, Peter Stearns, who was very much uh, on the same line as I was in the sense that he wasn't very... Happy with the quantitative approach, even though he was the head of the department. But on the other hand, there was a, a very well-known American historian, John Modell, who was one of the dem- historical was doing historical demography, and was very big in that that camp. And uh, so there was a tension uh, in my uh, academic upbringing in at Carnegie Mellon between the qualitative and the quantitative methods. Uh, Peter, on the other hand, he, he kind of said, well, you, you should go your uh, own way, and I will support it. And it, it was much more like a cultural, hist- cultri- cult- cultural historical approach, even though I saw myself very much as a, a social historian. And it wasn't really until I moved back to Iceland I got a, a handsome uh, scientific grant, three-year grant, Moved back to Iceland. I was planning to actually stay on for uh, for a while, at least in in America, and try to find a job there. <clears throat> and and uh, I wrote a book uh, in in Iceland, which was published in 1997, which was called Education, Love, and Grief. And uh, and that that was I was kind of under the influence of Peter Stans in terms of you know the history of emotions and. Uh, and that was—I uh, mean—I came across a very uh, nice collection of uh, uh, diaries, uh, collections of letters, and all kinds of handwritten uh, stuff from two brothers who were peasants, uh, young peasants in in uh, the area you actually traveled to in in the western part of Iceland, uh, the Westfjords. And uh, they were young when they started. Both of them in the same farm started on. Uh, uh, it's um, on a diary writing. and uh, it was interesting to have two brothers who were experiencing very similar things and to compare you know the, how they saw their everyday life. And uh, I connected actually the grief which was constantly around them. I mean there were this is the time when infant mortality in Iceland was around 35%. And so people were dying. I mean they were, they were nine brothers. Uh, in their family and four of them actually survived into adulthood so it was you know i, I connected the uh, education the lust and love for education which is was really apparent in their life with the fact that they were always grieving and they were trying to escape from uh, the grieving process and uh, they turned it they channeled it into education so Anyway, this was uh, w- when I was looking for a methodology h- how I could actually structure uh, my research. I looked into my shelves and saw Carlo Ginzburg uh, books, which I just brought before I left for uh, for Iceland. Uh, there there were a number of books which came from Quaderni Storici, the, the the great uh, uh, journal, uh, Italian journal, which was published by uh, uh, Baltimore University Press. Uh, the Lost People of Europe and uh, Microhistory, fantastic books, and and it. it I mean, I, I just by accident stumbled upon it, and uh, it it really gave me a very uh, uh, strong direction through my research. And uh, this was the first microhistorical uh, work which was published in Iceland: Education, Love, and Grief, and. Uh, it, was, it really had an effect on me, and I, 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 I saw that microhistory could actually be a very uh, uh, interesting approach for those who were doing qualitative research and had a lot of uh, ego documents, personal sources, at their hands, because they're complicated, and it's often very difficult to go through, let's say, a diary, which has been kept for decades, three or four decades. So how do you really do that?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That was the big question.
0: <laughs> I mean, and that's that's a question methodologically I mean that is that's kind of like the the gift the the, the joy and the and the suffering of the micro historian right? yes Yes. You know, um, and cultural history as kind of a a marriage of the cleometrics cu- social social science and then this microhistorical cultural humanities approach um, makes for my favorite history um, to perhaps and perhaps a bit biased, but I think it allows the space for um, for an historian to really imagine a world as well, right? And to we get to think about things in a way that I, I that if, people might not normally think of as history, right? If if you weren't in the, in the field. But this idea of you get an historical imagination and you create options. Absolutely. And, of course, there's a lot of criticism there.
1: Yes, indeed. And, but, I mean, I think the reason for uh, uh, why uh, micro historians tend to go uh, towards uh, what we mi- might call, you know, imagination, use their imagination more, is because they are really occupied with the gaps in our knowledge. And they don't press over the gaps they they do focus on them why is the gap in the sources like this i mean what actually happens there and and you know they they are just like detectives in the sense that uh, you know you 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 arrive at the uh, scene of the crime and you gather all your information but you realize that you don't have all the answers so you you start to try to Imagines, or or your or or the uh, puzzle together, the sources you have at your hand, and uh, sometimes you have to just openly talk about the gaps in your sources that you don't really know uh, the final outcome.
0: No, and that's that is such a beautiful thing when you're like, I, I, I can't tell you. Here's some, here's what I know, and here's what I can piece together, and this is what I think is likely, but we don't know. Um, it's wonderful. There's an honesty there. And um, that allows then also, I think, your reader to, to also exercise some historical imagination as well.
1: Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, actually, um, uh, you, you mentioned the honesty. And I, I think um, uh, at the time when uh, I was offered to write uh, The Wasteland book, Uh, I was uh, really harsh on a lot of my colleagues here in Iceland because a lot of them are doing general history synthesis. And uh, it was just the name of the game here at the Icelandic uh, history profession. And here I am, you know, newly discovered microhistory and just trying to find, you know, find our audience for that kind of approach. And people were just fairly skeptical about it. Because they were so used to that the whole department was kind of focused on general history writing, and I was trying to say, well, look, guys, you know, you are you are pressing all all over, you know, the 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 gaps you don't the the things you don't really know about in in terms of history writing, and so I it was a a minor uh, history war going on in Iceland at the time, and I was very critical and. uh, it was, it was a difficult time because a lot of these guys were just my friends and uh, some of them actually taught me at the University of Iceland when I was a student here. So it, it was an intense uh, uh, dialogue between you know, people about methods of history. But when I was in the middle of the war, uh, I got an email from Reaction Books and they asked me to write the general history of Iceland.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. So,
1: and, and I was just, mm, wow, what, what am I going to do now? <laughs> so, you know, this, I, I thought this was a very nice offer. But I, I was uh, kind of, I was facing a dilemma. I mean, should I go for it? Or you know, should I just be honest with myself and say, well, no, I'm not doing that kind of history. But in the end, I said to myself, well, I, I, I can't really uh, press this uh, off my table. This is just too good to be true. I mean, it's a very nice publishing house, Reaction Books. They, they publish approximately, I think, 500 books a year. And a lot of them are really beautifully uh, produced. And that kind of meant a lot to me. But I, I thought to myself, my challenge is to write a general history in a different manner than, you know, uh, most general history is written. and uh, uh, I wanted to apply micro-history to the general history approach and see whether it would work. So, uh, the, in the end, I ended up, uh, I think, writing approximately 20 chapters and all of them are a single entry, so to speak. I mean, could you uh, read them and enjoy it without, even though there is a certain argument in the book, uh, they they have they have a life on their own so to speak and uh, and then i kind of uh, shrank the time span from you know 1100 years which is the history of iceland approximately into a uh, you know around uh, 300 years or some eighteen, nineteen, hundred, twenty century history so i mean it was you know i i don't really regret it because i think uh, you know I learned a lot from it, and I learned a lot about the, the possibility of microhistory too. That you could actually uh, write a microhistory over a longer time span. And being now an editor of a Routledge uh, book series, which is called Microhistories, you know, with my friend and colleague, Istvan M. uh we actually get a lot of uh, book manuscripts from all over the world. And you know, they're just so it's uh, so interesting to realize how uh, people are adapting or using microhistory in a, on a very diff- different or uh, uh, all kinds of materials or, or time spans or you know geographical areas. So it's you know, microhistory can works very well in uh, in all circumstances
0: in this like broad this really broad context. I mean, because this is one of the things about Wasteland with Words is it's a microhistorical narrative. Like there's this very kind of a broad book that talking about the history of Iceland, but using microhistory. And, you know, it is, um, I just thought when I was reading it, we have come a long way from Cheese and the Worms, um, which is a classic and everyone should read it, but um, it, it does what it does. And this just, um, there's so much more promise here in your series. I want to read every single book in that series. Um, the same idea, like how, what can how do we get at this broader picture by focusing in? Um, it's really fascinating. And a part of the deal here is the kind of sources you can use, right? Like, so that's a, com- a conversation like, um, about, you know, for, for microhistory writ large. But let's talk about it in the case, in the context of Wasteland with Words. Like, What, what are your source material? Where do you get it? and what What's it like?
1: It, it's, it was mostly just, um, uh, it was mostly ego documents and uh, the strange thing about icelandic uh, society uh, let's say in, in the 18th, 19th century it was a very very poor society uh, possibly the poorest nation uh, in europe at the time uh, but literacy rate were almost 100% and that uh, and that was part of my argument you know how do you explain that in the in the book education love and grief I mean, how do you explain when you have a society with absolutely no infrastructure? I mean, how, how do you explain that this society uh, is actually has a literacy rate, especially writing, the, the, the technique of, 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 of reading, sorry, was 100%. I mean, most people just uh, had it. In the 18th century, the, argue, the old argument goes that in the 18th century with pietism, they actually insisted that people would learn to read the Bible, uh, but and the state was developing at the time, and it, it meant a lot to them also to have people that they could actually uh, take instructions from, uh, you know, from books or, or or whatever. But that doesn't really uh, fit very well. It does didn't really sit very well with me this this argument because the the uh, the fight for life and death in this society was number one that was the highest on the agenda people to survive the everyday life uh, 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 problems with everyday lives you know to survival so the argument uh, w- w- i try to connect it as i said before with you know the death rate in the in the country infant mortality very high and also just you don't have really bridges, you don't have uh, you know, roads in a society, and people were dying just, on, 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 you know, young people, parents and, and and children are often left with without pa- their parents at the very early age. So literacy became a, a tool for, you know, a survival tool. So you, you could ex- uh, escape the hardship of the society and drift into the Icelandic sagas, uh, written in the in the 12th century, uh, and uh, uh, in the 12th century, and stayed with the country or, or from uh, from uh, through through the centuries, and uh, uh, had a huge impact on the development of the popular culture in the country. So when you are in the when we uh, got into the 19th century, you know, pen and paper became affordable. And people could actually buy it, and that was just like a, a flood, flood of uh, new material, which from the general public, which had kind of the need to uh, uh, to tell their story, even though they didn't really have very much to say, they really did want to say it anyway, because the Icelandic family sagas took place in the same in the same environment as they were living in. So they could easily see themselves in the position to actually, uh, you know, to write their own story. And then the, you had these uh, these guys, which we called barefoot historians. You know, these uh, poor peasants or peasants uh, uh, who who sat day in and day out and coll- uh, and produced material for quiltvaga uh, or the winter eve gatherings uh, around the country.
0: So trying to understand I mean this title Wasteland with Words is an odd title but I I'm, I'm getting it now as you're explaining it to me. This is you have this incredibly poor ex- country that's difficult to live in with this with where grief is as much of the landscape as rock and snow and right. But with this tradition that makes it very literary. Yeah. So we
1: have a wasteland with words. Wasteland yeah. still seems harsh, but okay. Well, uh, Iceland is a wasteland. I mean, it's you know, if you travel uh, in the interior, especially, I mean, in, it it is it is a huge wasteland. But uh, it is cre- created by words. I mean, that's that's the argument, kind of, and the uh, the literary uh, culture kind of made the country, and that, and it it had a huge impact on not only how people. Uh, developed in the 18th or the 19th century, but for sure, uh, when modernization kind of reached the country, and they, it took gigantic steps into the modern times in a fairly short period of time, and because they were prepared for it, they've had literary upbringing. I mean, they they knew poetry, they knew abstract ideas, abstract thoughts, so. When mechanization came into the country, and you know, with the trawlers or the factories, it was a it wasn't a really a big leap for a lot of people to take. I mean, they they understood how to uh, you know deal with abstract thoughts. So, and it, it is this is really a, really a remarkable to you know to get an access to people's thinking through their private stuff diaries collections of letters or or just all kinds of handwritten uh, manuscripts because uh, throughout the centuries uh, through oral and uh, and uh, written word uh, people were really eager to uh, you know uh, To express themselves. And then you have in the 20th century, you have autobiographies, which I used quite a lot in my doctoral dissertation. You know, you have just regular people basically stating at the beginning, I don't really have very much to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. This is my life. And that's really valuable. It really is.
0: Well, and you can see the connection, right, with these with these sagas, with the idea of like I don't have much to say, but it's my life as it connects to a thousand years here in Iceland.
1: Indeed, indeed, and I mean that's a part of it, also. I mean you have this uh, ancient tradition which kind of directed people. I mean it, it gave them; uh, it was a model uh, for them to, uh, to follow, and um, so. Um, but at the, uh, in the in the uh, late modern period uh, you see uh, the whole nation takes off i mean you it is interesting to uh, to look at it from uh, the standpoint of memory how memory is you know selective uh, uh, collective memory uh, historical memory and individual memory and i have sometimes argued that you know uh, iceland is uh, has a a different take on the memory uh, process uh, since uh, Selective uh, uh, collective memory was uh, was very weak in Iceland, where it was very strong in Europe through the village communities. Uh, In Iceland, there were just every uh, every farm was an island, so to speak. It was scattered around the country, and you know you didn't really have a formation of uh, villages or uh, cities for that for for that matter. Uh, So you have a very weak collective memory but you have a strong or, or growing historical memory because of the old tradition in the science tradition. And also in the 19th century, the independent movement, which was an intellectual moment, very, very much an intellectual movement, was growing. But that gave this com- uh, co- uh, combination of uh, collective memory and historical memory made a lot of space for individual memory. So it wasn't a big leap for the individual to step into the memory process to say, hey, I have something to say and I'm going to say it, you know,
0: as well as your written sources. Um, and the, the you know, the primary we're historians. That's so the primary thing that we use. We love it. We love text. But you also very strategically use some wonderful images that juxtapose, I'm thinking, um, you know, particularly of this, the the picture of this little boy with a giant truck, you know, and so there's this little blonde waif of a child and an American truck coming at him. They really juxtapose this traditional, what we consider like traditional Icelandic idea of the farmer, you know, I'm sure he's got skier in his bag or something. Right. And then, and then the, the incursion of 20th century World War II on this island. And um, so the, the imagery is very striking, but it also reflects a, a very striking moment in Iceland's history. Yeah,
1: Of course. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, uh, uh, the editor of the book, he, he, uh, he asked me to write what he called uh, a picture essay, which I thought was a great concept. Uh, and try to think about uh, think about uh, the, the illustrations, the, the photos. Uh, so I could take the reader on a, join, a journey through the book and give them a very strong impression what the book was all about. So you say, yeah, I have a fairly uh, big uh, text uh, related to a, a, every photo. And uh, so uh, I thought a lot about what kind of uh, illustrations I was going to uh, put in the book because I wanted to, uh, like a lot of people, uh, pick up a book and they they start to look at the photos. And so it would give them kind of an impression what kind of book this was and what kind of argument I was going to make. And, uh, you know, you, you are mentioning one, one photo, which is just absolutely great, about this young boy who is, you know, watching the big truck coming at him. And it, it certainly is, and there is another one from the monster from the deep. Uh, you know this the the turtle which uh, ended up in you know in the same area as you were in stranded in the, in the western area, and you know this this farmer who kind of fa- found this gigantic turtle. Yeah.
0: You, all right, this is one of the, um, we, tragically, we don't have time, but it's not tragic. Read the book. But we don't have time to talk about all of the amazing stories in here. But the Monsters from the Deep chapter was just fantastic. Will you tell our, tell our listeners about this?
1: Well, I, I kind of used it to, uh, to uh, show how the modern times kind of arrived in Iceland. You know, there you had the very uh, traditional fishing wheelets, small fishing willets, uh, Holmavík in the western part of Iceland. And uh, this fisherman ends up, you know, uh, hooking into this uh, gigantic uh, turtle which came from the, with the Gulf Stream, probably, from Africa. And it, it, it caught the attention of everyone, of course, in the village. And he ended up uh, touring with it, uh, you know, around, uh, around the country. And it still, uh, it ended up in the National Museum of Iceland, and uh, i remember uh, looking at it as a young boy going through it and seeing this you know uh, this gigantic structure you know it, it was just fantastic so it was a you know i i got a, i got hold on these photos and i said well this is just uh, just amazing opportunity to show how icelandic society was around the, the 1960 or something, or something like that when i was born and uh, so uh, I used it just to, you know, illustrate uh, what kind of society was at the time, right after uh, uh, the Second World War. But uh, it was funny because you, you mentioned the uh, the Wasteland book, and, and you know, I was uh, it was published two thousand and ten in May, and uh, right after its publication, uh, there was a volcanic eruption in Iceland, Eyjafjallajökull. erupted and stopped all air trafficking in in Europe at the time. Yes,
0: I remember, yeah. (laughs) And
1: and the publisher was incredibly happy about it. Uh, Probably the only person, you know, in Europe who was happy about it because it it got a lot of attention because of this. And, uh, you know, uh, for example, uh, The Economist wrote a, a review on it, which made a huge difference. I mean, it was, it, I mean, The Economist did one of the best journals in the in the world and uh, it was fairly favorable, but I mean, you know, but just to get in there, I mean, that was kind of amazing for a book like this. And uh, two years later, uh, the the guy who wrote the review, he uh, sent me an email and said, well, I'm coming up for for the weekend with my son. I would like to meet you. Yeah, it was really, really good. So I invited him home and uh, uh, he taught, he happened to be one of the editors of uh, the Economist, and his uh, focus was on the Eastern Bloc of Europe. So I asked him, you know, why, why did you write about my book since you are your focus is on the Eastern Bloc? And he said, well, I was going on a weekend uh, uh, vacation and uh, uh, next to the door of the, of uh, uh, of the economist is you know a huge table with a lot of books and i just went into the pile and uh, took one out and that was your book <laughs> and it really made a huge difference for its distribution in the world i mean it was reviewed re- reviewed all over the world in australia and america europe and all, all, all over the place <laughs>
0: What a what a wonderful ambassador for uh, for Iceland, and and uh, yeah, and microhistory as well. Yeah, and like one of the like we, I've taken quite quite a bit of your time already, so I'm gonna like roll. Like, let's, let's close this down a little bit. We'll we'll roll through to the end. But one of the things that I want to talk to you about is um you your portrayal of Iceland is um you know it seems like a quirky little place. <laughs>
1: It really is. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. So, you know, what what do I think? What as a what's a reader going to think about Iceland when they finish your book? Uh,
1: well, I mean, it is a, a huge country. I mean, it is big, it's a big island. But I mean, uh, the interior, of course, is incredibly beautiful, and the, no one lives there, so to speak. I mean, it's just around around the island in the coastal areas where people live. Uh, so it gives you a really a great opportunity to see uh, unspoiled nature, so to speak. But at the same time, I mean, there are only 360,000 people who live here. So uh, it, it is a very unusual place to be in. Uh, you know, I, I traveled, for example, with my American friends in, in um, where you just you take the boat and they throw you at the, at the beach you are on your own for five days and you don't really see anyone for five days but it's it's a it's an adventure for you know for example American uh, you know my friends from Pittsburgh who uh, who just had never really uh, been in 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 a place like this where you don't really see anyone I mean of course you can go through places in America where you know you have unspoiled nature and stuff like that but you know, there are 360, 000, uh, 360 million people who live in America, you know, uh, compared to 360,000 in Iceland. So um, I um, I hope and, and I know that the book has, because I, a lot of people have written me, uh, to me after they have read it, and I think uh, a lot of people th- find it kind of uh, interesting to see especially the eco-documents, the personal sources, because I use them a lot, which I, I do think is fairly unusual for a book like this, to because I just had so much uh, stuff to deal with, and I have actually used it in other books too. Uh, just recently, I, I wrote a book called uh, uh, "Emotional Experience," which deals with one of these barefoot historians uh, from the late nineteenth century, uh, uh, and he lived, uh, he died. Uh, uh, 1916 and he was you know he became actually the the model for Haldos Laxness uh, book uh, The World Light which is a wonderful book and he used his diary actually to structure his book and, uh, it, it, it was just he was such a hopeless poet I mean he he, he wrote poetry uh, all the time uh, apparently, eleven thousand uh, different poetry, uh, you know, could be found in the manuscript department. But uh, he was uh, uh, he was just so determined to uh, to continue with his quest for education and uh, and culture. But he still was incredibly poor, and uh, somehow on the periphery of society. But he kept a diary for you know twenty four years, which give you a great access to his thinking and his his life. And so I have been using quite a lot you know these ego documents uh, in my in my work. And uh, I certainly did that in in this book, Wasteland book.
0: There's so much there um, that you can write about. That you aren't thinking about as well, you know. So he's talking about how he feels or whatever, but there's always, you know, the what's going on, the tragedy of this. But there's so many things that you can see about just quotidian existence, right? Like just what a kitchen's like, what they're eating, you know, how they talk to one another. The also are just so rich, um and another place where you can really get at kind of how society works.
1: Indeed, absolutely, and I, I think that's one one thing you get out of the book, uh, and you know. To understand the Icelandic mentality, it is, you know, um, I I remember uh, when my uh, my book uh, Education, Love, and Grief came out. Um, historians were, you know, that they were, you know, a lot of them were interested in it, but psychologists they were really interested in it because it was the the culture of emotions which they found there. And a lot of people who were, you know, visiting them for, you know, uh, going through th- therapy, there were there were people who were had in their uh, in the back of their head some kind of uh, uh, the way how they dealt with grief and a lot of those things, you know, were just part of the history from the 18th and nineteenth century. I mean, I had a grandmother who was born in the uh, in the end of the nineteenth century, and you know, I, I hung around her all the time, so. This was a real, uh, this is a real thing for me to actually deal with problems like grief in a specific way, which you don't really find, I think, in a lot of other places. And uh, when I, I came to America as a graduate student, uh, all of my friends had gone through th- therapy, but I had never gone to therapy. And actually, my father actually threatened to send me to a psychologist if I would not behave. You know, (laughs) do you see, I mean, it was, you were just expected to deal with it yourself, but we live in a different society today. I mean, for
0: sure. A little, I mean, we're still, we're still figuring that out. Um, Um, I mean, I live in the Netherlands, so it's. We're still very stiff upper lip here. But uh, yeah, and this idea of like how you deal with your grief. What a good model. You, know, you write, write about it. <laughs> like yeah. cry yeah.
1: about it. Lament. Yeah. Or just poetry. I mean, a lot of people use poetry. I mean, because uh, these poems, they, they dealt with all kinds of different uh, emotions. And a lot of women, for example, were losing their children. I mean, they, they recited poetry the day in and the day out. And they remembered a lot of them. And you see that in the diaries and you see it in, in letter writing, you know, how they actually deal with grief through the literary text. And that was, you know, Wasteland with Word. I mean, it, it, it is the written word which really matters and makes the country hospital hospitable uh, uh, even though it, it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly harsh environment to live in. Yeah.
0: Yeah, which I think um, I think is hard to imagine. I think for most most of the world can't imagine living in a place that is so inhospitable. It seems to not be interested in you and your survival at all, right? <laughs> <laughs> Iceland, yeah, it's uh, it's wonderful. What a beautiful place, though, and it was it was lovely. Um, and I like I uh, I like reading about, reading this book kind of took me back to dealing with Icelanders and how nice everyone and and, and genuinely, like, interested in your life people are, you know? Okay. I suppose if you don't get to talk to people that often. That's,
1: that's right. That's right. I mean, uh, hospital, uh, hospital, uh, hospitality uh, is a part of the Icelandic mentality, I think. I mean, they re- really welcome people because of what you are saying, you know. When you don't really, no one is passing by your farm, you know, and someone shows up there, you know, you you ask them about you know what what is in the news and what's going on, and you know, so.
0: Sure. And there is also that understanding. I'm from um, you know, I'm from Michigan, and the which is uh, we have serious winters, you know, and there's there's hospitality is about that friendliness, but also about the understanding that if you don't take care of this person, they might die. Um, yeah. And that's interesting. And that is this phenomenon you see very far back. You can read, you see that in the sagas as well, right?
1: Absolutely. And and I mean, the, the difference between Michigan and Iceland in the sense is that, you know, you have harsh winters in, in both places, but the spring is, you know, very short. Summer is very short too. And sometimes it never arrived. I mean, in the 19th century, the, you, you had actually farmers who had just to give up their farm because the summer never arrived and so the family just split up and you know young children were sent back you know uh, to another farms and they started to work very very early on and it kind of toughens them up those who survived actually these in in the 19th century there was a, a a population boom in iceland so people started to move further into the interior to uh, to uh, 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 establish their farms and immediately when a harsh summer or harsh winter arrived these people uh, drifted back and you know they they lost their farms and they had maybe few children or or, or and they were just sent uh, the poor relief uh, kicked in and the uh, and they, they were, you know, split up. And that, that's a lot of very tragic uh, stories around the, exactly these kind of experience.
0: Yeah, interesting. Okay. We'll make a national culture, won't it? Our national character. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, let's turn back to the joyful for a minute, or at least possibly, I don't know, uh, and tell me like, the uh, optimistic anyway, which is fundamentally what happens when you start to write a book. So uh, what are you working on right now?
1: Uh, I actually, I am uh, running a, a, a grant. We got a grant of excellence, and uh, we, yes, we. Uh, uh, I have been well. Let me let me back down because I am I am working on an incredible. I mean, the project of my life. Yes, uh, nineteen twenty-seven. Uh, there was a woman born in uh, the area of Skagafjörður which is kind of the northwest of uh, west of Iceland um, and she was born to a, a parent very very poor parents and in a farm called Berlin a big name for a very small farm uh, and at the age of one uh, the the doctor uh, Made the decision that she was an idiot.
0: Ah, okay.
1: Single-minded, and uh, she was treated like that in the family. She was put aside when you know when she uh, when guests arrived, and they lived in uh, an incredibly small. They had a very small home. They were a family of four, so she was always put aside when uh, guests arrived, and she didn't really get the normal education. Um, she was not confirmed, which was the big thing in the farming society. Well, she, she was kind of, you know, an uh, incredibly isolated human being. And at the age of 30, her mother actually died. Her father was always very strict to her and, you know, didn't really want to uh, show her up. And at the age of 30, she lost her mother. And uh, they wanted to send her to Reykjavik, to an institution for uh, uh, people with uh, disabled people. And she refused to go. So she ended up to going to a nearby uh, village or, or town. Uh, and she was placed in an old age zone, at the age of 30. And there she stayed for 30 years. And uh, one of the staff of the... Of the uh, and this was 1958. Where she, when she moved uh, to the uh, to the old date zone, and twenty years later, uh, one of the staff uh, a person there uh, decided to actually take her back into town, I gave her and uh, rented her a room, and she became kind of an ind- independent uh, person, and uh, she lived there uh, on her own uh, uh, with, with the support of this woman. Uh, until she returned to the old age home, where she died at the age of uh, uh, 1999. And when she died, they found a manuscript, an autobiography, 145,000 words. I mean, the regular book is 90,000 words, and uh, where and no one really knew that she could read or write. Yeah. Oh
0: my God.
1: It's incredible, incredible document. I mean, totally incredible document. And we actually applied for a scientific grant, uh, myself and uh, two of my colleagues, um, uh, a professor in disability studies. Uh, and uh, we are now in the process of, of actually uh, working on a, a, a study. We just published the, the autobiography just a few, a few uh a few days uh, uh, a few days ago in a book series which i actually edit uh, from uh, i've been uh, editing from 1997 uh, anthology from icelandic popular culture and uh, it's uh, gudrun my my colleague she actually wrote uh, an introduction to the book and uh, uh, it's just such an amazing story because this is a woman who kind of took charts of her life still even though she was kind of always in the shadow uh, on on the periphery, so to speak, of society, she actually collected dolls. She had 130 uh, 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 dolls, and she treated them like her family. Um, she uh, was when she was walking from the old age home to town. It was five kilometers so, or, or six kilometers. She saw and actually. Uh, a place no one really knows, uh, new owned, and she basically started to form a garden there. And for twenty years, she uh, she uh, built up a very very nice uh, garden uh, on her own, from early in the spring and into the uh, uh, in the fall. And uh, so she kind of took charge of her life, and she had a certain agency uh, in her it's, it was incredibly interesting to see. and uh, We are writing a book about it, uh, The Secret Life of B.B. from Berlin. That was her name, B.B. And uh, and it's going to be published in, uh, I, I, I hope, uh, Routlets will publish it in uh, 2024
0: or so. Okay. I can't wait.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, this is, uh, you know, it, it's so funny to, to uh, find a document like this because, you know, being... Uh, being in the business from 1980, uh, you dream about something uh, which mirrors the society from this perspective. I mean, it's just such an amazing, you know, opportunity to, to uh, analyze the 20th century society of, in Iceland.
0: That's amazing. God, that's yeah. going to be, that's <laughs> cool. What a treasure trove that must have been for you to find. <laughs>
1: Indeed, it really is. Wow. And, and, and it's just, you know, a lot of her relatives are still alive, uh, and uh, people from the town. They were we, we gave a, a, actually a, uh, a lecture uh, at the university uh, a few weeks back, uh, and a lot of people from uh, from the town showed up. It was a, a packed lecture hall, and they were really worried that she would uh, how she actually pictured them. Uh, uh but she is critical i mean she definitely is critical but she is a very uh she has just an amazing uh uh vocabulary um she has uh she has an amazing way of expressing herself uh her grammar is poor but i mean that's just how it is uh a lot of uh, the a lot of uh she follows kind of the the, the pronunciation a lot uh and we we didn't really want to mess with the text. We just show it as it is. And uh, we didn't want to uh, add to the people who were messing with her life. So we wanted to have her text there as it was. Yes, yes, let her speak. I mean, that's that's but I mean, uh, then we are this is her autobiography, and we are kind of writing a biography using critical disability studies uh, uh, and microhistory. That is the combination of this uh, approach of ours. We are trying to combine uh, critical disability studies and microhistory, and that's 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 what we are planning to do for the next two. Yeah,
0: (laughs) that's gonna be great all right my friend it has been so nice to talk to you thank you so much
1: well thanks for inviting me i I loved it i'm good to. i i'm I'm gonna follow your program for sure
0: okay the best news ever (laughs) all right we'll talk uh we'll talk about it in uh, 2024 i guess when this book comes out with
1: (laughs) by all means by all means